0: A large part of the world rejoiced at the news. Berlin fell, and the war in Europe was over. But the whispers began at once. Is Hitler really dead, they asked. Greetings, my friend. When you mention the movies you hold near and dear, do other people run away from you really fast? Sometimes it seems as if I belong to a different world. We invite you to our cinematic science lab in the Mountains of Madness. A rest stop for those who like their films with double extra cheese. The Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. What kind of place is this? It's a safe haven from summer blockbusters. A refuge from the reboots, remakes, and regurgitations of Hollywood. But be careful. Once you've stepped into this dimension of demented directors, you may not want to step back out. Don't try to escape, you can. There is no way out of here, because all you of Earth are idiots. And now, your guide to this episode's journey through the junkyard of Hollywood, Professor Stanton Gearhart. Hello and welcome to the lab, or welcome back to the lab if you've been listening in the past. I am your partially mechanized Master of Ceremonies, Professor Stanton Gearhart, and I bid you welcome to episode number four of the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat, where you can take shelter from the multi-million dollar mediocrities of modern Hollywood and explore the bizarre, obscure, and downright cheesy films of past and present, The movies that will entertain you in ways their creators never intended. Now, I saw the movie that we're going to be considering today under the title, They Saved Hitler's Brain. Because when I see a DVD with that kind of title, a voice in my head simply commands me, see this movie. But that's not actually the original title. The film originally came out in 1963, but that's only really where the story begins. It's all kind of messy. And this movie is also hard to classify, Is it has two things that set it apart. Number one, the title suggests that it's uh, in that subgenre of science fiction known as the disembodied brain movie, although disembodied head would be, would be more accurate. And it's also what I like to call a Frankensteined film. Not Frankenstein, the name, but Frankensteined, using the name as a verb in the past tense, as to that's what's basically been done to this movie. And this will all make sense uh, in due time. So let's go ahead and give you a trailer here. In the diabolical minds of the madmen of Mandoras was created the most incredible plot ever conceived to conquer the world. Why did you bring us here, really? In a matter of hours, we would begin the conquest of the world. Phil Day, undercover agent, trapped in the trap he set for the madmen of (laughs) Mandoras. Professor Coleman, American scientist, believed his staggering discovery to be a secret. Up to now, Anthropine was the only known antidote. The loss or destruction of the formula for this antidote would mean complete annihilation of the world. But he did not reckon with a group of evil men, men who will permit nothing to stop their rule of the world. What unknown force has been created to conquer the world? And which of the madmen pushed the panic button? Somebody's gotta get Vorak. I guess it's up to me, Casey. you're probably wondering, why did I just play you a trailer for a film called The Mad Men of Mandoras whenever the movie that we're reviewing is called They Save Hitler's Brain? Well, it's because it's essentially the same movie. And again, when we get into the history of this film, we'll get into all this in a bit more depth. But on to the movie itself. We start off with a kind of goofy prologue section where we meet two agents of the FBI's Criminal Investigative Division a kind of goofy-looking fellow with uh, a, well, I don't want to call it a Ron burgundy mustache, but that kind of gives you a feel for what we're getting at here, and bad 70s hair. His name is Vic. And uh, we also meet Tony, a uh, blonde girl in a miniskirt that I'm sure was not standard FBI issue in any decade. Wait a minute. You know, this isn't going to look very good in my report. Oh, so now you're going to blackmail me into working with you? Blackmail nothing. You don't have to work with me if you don't want to. But if you're that thin skinned, and that's going in the report too, you know you're really disgusting coming from you, that's a compliment. And the two of them have been assigned to investigate the murder of a noted scientist involved with a project to produce a nerve gas antidote. But nothing that you see Vic and Tony in in this section of the movie is of any consequence. They don't get very far in their investigation. Before they're knocked off by a couple of, shall we say, Blues Brothers lookalikes, fedoras, sunglasses, dark suits, who drive around in a big black car. I can't tell if it's a Lincoln or a Cadillac. I'll be the first to admit, Professor Gearhart is not a car guy. In any case, these two fellows were the ones who killed the scientist at the beginning of the film by blowing up his car... And now their primary role in the movie is to drive around in their wannabe bluesmobile and shoot people they don't like. And two of the people that they do in fairly early into the film are Vic and Tony. Now the real story starts. And this won't take very long because there's not much plot to be had in this film. On the completely made up island of Mandoras, a group of escaped Nazis operate under the leadership of... Oh boy! Please don't let me don't make me say this. Under the leadership of Adolf Hitler's disembodied head, I will repeat that Adolf Hitler's disembodied head. He had a tremendous fear of death, and created a succession of Mr. H's. There were attempted assassinations. None of the assassinations failed to kill someone. not, Mr. H. He practically never appeared in public, and the legend that he was indestructible started to grow. Hitler had his head surgically removed and spirited away to Mandoras. Apparently they couldn't sneak the whole man out of Berlin, but a head-sized package could be flown out without suspicion. I don't know, I'd just go with it. It's been kept alive since World War II in a great big jar hooked up to what appears to be a home-built radio set. No breathing apparatus or blood supply from what I could see. Ultimately, the plan, at least as I could come to understand it, would be to put his brain into a fresh clone body at some point. Now folks, when a major plot point involves the pickled but still living head of one of history's most notorious despots... It's not a good sign for your film. Anyway, um, the Hitler head and his Nazi minions plan to conquer the world and establish the Fourth German Reich by spraying every major city of the world with a deadly nerve gas. What they plan on doing after that when everybody is dead and there's nobody left to rule, I have no idea, but that's the plan. The only problem is that an antidote has been developed for the gas by a professor John Coleman. The loss or destruction of the formula for this antidote would mean complete annihilation of the world. It was Coleman's colleague, a Professor Barnard, who was murdered by the Blues Brothers at the outset of the film, at least in the form that we're discussing now. So the Nazis kidnap him and take, them back, take him back with them, that is, to Mandoras, where they try to torture the secret out of him by strapping him under a loudspeaker and playing Yoko Ono music really, really loud. Well, maybe it isn't Yoko, but it's just as shrill. And even though it would be enough to drive the average person out of his skull after a while, it doesn't seem that Professor Coleman is much the worse for wear when the speakers shut off. Anyway, his disappearance prompts his son-in-law, Phil Day, who you heard about in the trailer, who also happens to be a CID agent, and uh, his daughter, Kathy... Uh, Professor Coleman's daughter, Kathy, that is... ...to fly off to Mandoras to investigate. They aren't there very long... ...before they're caught up in the Nazi plot... ...and are imprisoned with the good doctor... ...apparently at the connivance of the local police chief... ...who looks like a Hispanic version of Otis from the Andy Griffith show... ...and the president of Mandoras himself. But it turns out that both of these public officials... ...are actually just wor- are working to sabotage the operation from the inside and so they break our heroes out and make plans to foil the Nazi scheme. They've been planning the conquest of the world for 18 years. Now that that thing says that the time has come. Do they really follow its orders? Does it give orders, Senor Coleman? Does it really give orders? The Nazis, including the Fuhrer in a Jar, drive to a small airstrip to meet one of their generals. And it's at this point that our heroes attack the group with grenades, pretty much blowing everything up, including the car holding Adolf's jarred cranium. In a sequence that's really more humorous than horrific, um, I couldn't watch it and not laugh anyway, Hitler's head melts like a great big honking, furor-shaped candle, and that's that as far as the story goes. Now here's where things get interesting whenever we get into the proper history of They Saved Hitler's Brain. And so we'll call our film history class to order. Now first up we're actually going to talk more at length about the two different genres this film can be considered a part of. The first is what is known as the disembodied brain movie, which is a subgenre that includes such other low budget gems as 1953's Donovan's Brain and 1957's The Brain from Planet Eros. Both very good watches. Now, as a scientist of schlock cinema, I really prefer to be a little more precise and classify this as a sub subgenre, the disembodied head movie, for the obvious reasons, because it's not Hitler's brain they saved so much as it was his whole head. And believe it or not, there are a number of other films like this, such as 1957's The Man Without a Body, which I haven't yet seen, and 1962's notorious The Brain That Wouldn't Die, which I have seen. I've even seen what's purported to be authentic Soviet footage from 1940 of experiments where a dog's disembodied head is kept alive and alert with the use of a primitive heart-lung machine. That kind of unsettled me whenever I saw it, because this was, purportedly, I have no reason to believe otherwise, a real machine that was essentially the forerunner of the machine that kept me alive during my open heart surgery. So, sorry for the digression there, but it it did strike a chord with me. Anyway, there's a lot of fun and games to be had with a movie like this, where the monster is a disembodied head hooked up to some sort of apparatus. And typically the science, if you really want to call it that, is very fast and loose. But we'll get more to that a little bit in the analysis. Now for the other subgenre of exploitation that this film belongs to, um, the Frankenstein film, what I mean by that is that this movie, in the form in which we've discussed it and that I've viewed it, was made up of an earlier film with additional footage shot later on and spliced in and in most cases the editing is such that you can clearly see the seams and the stitches just like Frankenstein's monster two other notable films of this type from this time period were based on Soviet sci-fi films that were purchased by Roger Corman for Western distribution and then were re-edited into movies that saw American release as Battle Beyond the Sun in 1962 and Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet in 1965 Again, both movies that I highly recommend. Um, they're both very entertaining, and I'll likely end up reviewing both on here at some point. But the fact remains that they're both, they both definitely show the splices between the original footage and the scenes that were later shot and added in. The same is the case for the film we're discussing right now. The core of the film that we're calling They Saved Hitler's Brain was released in originally in 1963 as its own picture, entitled Mad Men of Mandoras. That's the trailer you heard earlier. But it was also shown in some markets as The Amazing Mr. H. Now, according to the book The Golden Turkey Awards, uh, when this film was released in its original form, and for some reason it gives a date of 1964, it was dismissed by Variety magazine as a quote-unquote melodramatic fiasco, and the book itself gave the film the the award the most brainless brain movie of all time. But how did it go from Mad Men of Mandoras to They Saved Hitler's Brain? Well, there really isn't a complete answer to this question. What we know for sure is that Crown International about Crown International Pictures wanted to re release Mad Men of Mandoras as a TV movie. But at around 74 minutes in length, the running time was a little too short. To take up two hours of airtime, accounting for commercials, it needed to be closer to about an hour and a half. So a group of UCLA film students were hired to flesh out the film to about 92 minutes with extra footage, primarily tacked to the beginning, but also intercut with the original 1963 footage here and there. And this tries to give it a little bit more of a spy movie angle. The key word being try. Um, When things get murky is as to when all of this took place. The big problem here is that the opening credits are essentially those of Mad Men of Mandoras with a new title slapped onto the front of them. It doesn't list any of the names of the film students who wrote, directed, or acted in the later footage, and the Internet Movie Database doesn't give any assistance in this regard either. I've consulted Wikipedia and a whole bunch of online reviews for a little help with this side of the story, and it's just a mess, all kind of conflicting information. The dates range wildly from 1968 to 1973. Uh, Because of the music, the clothing, and the hairstyles in the later footage, I'm I'm inclined to agree with a post-1970 release date. The Volkswagen Beetle that was driven by Tony in the beginning of the film is has large circular taillights, which one reviewer claims didn't come out until the 1973 model. But, again, I'm not a car guy, so I can't confirm that detail one or deny it. So, unless I ever run into someone who collects old TV guides where I could really pinpoint a date that the movie came out on TV, we'll never know for sure. Um, I'm going to go with 1973, but again it's it's kind of up in the air one thing that really puzzles me about this film is the title that it was ultimately given madmen of mandoras or even the amazing mr h has at least a little mystery to it you're not entirely sure what you're getting into but they saved hitler's brain there's your whole plot basically in four words the title is its own spoiler But still, it does leave enough questions like how to draw you in anyway. So now, let's go ahead and run this film through some analysis. Now, all the information that I just discussed with you, I really did not know at the time that I watched this film. All I knew is that a movie existed with the title, They Saved Hitler's Brain, and that fact alone compelled me to see it. What I experienced was not unlike what movie audiences in decades past saw from time to time when the feature they went to see was preceded by a short film, maybe a Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers serial or a Three Stooges comedy short, except in this case the short was masquerading as part of the movie. The first 18 minutes of They Saved Hitler's Brain are completely different from the rest for reasons we've already discussed. The camera work, the lighting, the music, Mm -hmm. possibly even the film stock. It just doesn't look like any effort was made to actually blend this footage in with the rest of the film in any convincing manner. Basically, the first 18 minutes of they saved Hitler's brain serve nerve serve, ner- serve <laughs> they serve no purpose whatsoever but to take up 18 minutes worth of movie. Everything that takes place in this time period has no bearing on the rest of the film at all. All of the main characters in this portion of the film are killed off except for the blues brothers these, for the obvious reasons. And the viewer is just left thinking, why did I just watch this? There is some later cutting, but it's painfully obvious once again and just points out how unnecessary this later footage was, except for the purpose of padding. In any case, I'm glad that I had a couple of colleagues with me in the lab to view this one. I could have probably held my own against it alone, but this film is perfect grist for rapid-fire MST3K-style commentary. Uh, I'm actually surprised that the show never um, took it on itself. There, are, Because there are plenty of downright stupid moments from the get-go. For instance, during one sequence, Phil and Kathy are riding in a car with the man who told them where Dr. Coleman was being held... ...and the Blues Brothers, in the last intercutting of the later footage, shoot him. Two stupid things happen here. First up, neither Phil nor Kathy can figure out what's wrong with the guy... Even though the gunshot was clearly audible Oh, something's wrong. What's wrong? I don't know. Then when they pull over to investigate after a day for night driving sequence that would have made Ed Wood proud, Kathy gasps. And that just became our favorite line of the film because she just states the obvious that should have been obvious from the very beginning but she's acting surprised. When we finally see Hitler's pickled head in all its glory it's in front of a huge swastika which just happens to be backwards. None of the Nazis speak a word of German except for the head which just basically twitches a lot and keeps yelling which means make it quick or hurry up. Now, as I mentioned before, the jar that Hitler's head is stored in sits atop what looks like some kind of radio set with some dials and knobs and switches, but no fan, no pumps or bellows, no kind of apparent breathing apparatus, no blood supply, nothing that would really be essential to sustain the head's life. Now, in order to speak, you have to breathe. Air has to pass over the vocal cords and be compressed into sound waves. That's how the human voice works. That's how sound works. And so many films that feature disembodied heads that speak get this wrong. When Hitler's head was carried out to the car in a little clear bucket of its own, it inspired a number of jokes along the lines of, now remember, no punting the Fuhrer's head, you know how that annoys him. What about bowling? No, no bowling with the Fuhrer's head. It gives him migraines, and so on and so forth. Uh, we had to do something to you know, keep the movie going. And the climax, or anticlimax, was whenever Hitler's head perishes in the car wreck. He doesn't struggle or twitch or anything. He just melts into a puddle with a forlorn, resigned expression in a very cheap effects shot. And I think the expression was a result of the wax of the effigy that they were using of his head softening up. I really don't think it was intentional, but it is hilarious as Hall get-out. And of course, this prompted me to say, Oh, Phil, the Fuhrer's dead! For as cheesy a film as this is, it does have passable music and competent camera work. At least, um, except for the first 18 minutes. Of course, the acting in both parts is equally bad, and you'll notice I haven't really mentioned any names of actors or directors or anything because none of these performances were really memorable or worth a mention. Now, where could you find a copy of this movie if you really wanted to see it? Well, They Saved Hitler's Brain can be found on the usual sites, Amazon and eBay, for anywhere uh, from 4 to 10 bucks, depending on whether you get it new or used. There's also a rarer disc that pairs it up with another disembodied Nazi-head movie called The Frozen Dead, which I may have to see at some point uh, just to see if there's enough evidence to establish the legitimate existence of a sub-sub-sub-genre. But that double feature disc runs in the neighborhood of about 30 bucks, if you can find it. It's kind of rare. There are also some cheapo horror film multi-packs that also include They Saved Hitler's Brain, Uh, and in some instances, they also include the original Mad Men of of Mandoras as a separate film, which I haven't actually seen. All I've seen is the They Saved Hitler's Brain version, so sometime I may view that and maybe do a quick addendum to this podcast just to uh, describe some of the differences, if anything was edited out of that original film. The Rhino Entertainment DVD version that I obtained, which I think is out of print now, tells a story on the back of the cover slick of how the film was pieced together, very similar to the story that I just told, but the dates are all a full decade off, saying that the 1963 footage was filmed in 1953, and so on. And the copyright date already proves that wrong. Uh, The movie is also available on Netflix for those who have the DVD service. So, in conclusion, as dreadfully uneven as this film is, it still manages to be somewhat entertaining, especially if you have a few friends with which to share the experience. I don't know if I'd want to watch it alone, but, you know, with a few fr- have a few friends over, get a pizza, some beers, whatever, if you're of age, of course, and uh, it might make for a fun evening. And let's face it, unless you're a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi, Any movie featuring Hitler dying at the end can't be all bad. Besides, the looks that people will give you when they see a title as ridiculous as They Saved Hitler's Brain in your movie collection is by itself worth the price of owning this movie. Well, that's it for this episode. As always, this is Professor Stanton Gearhart signing off with the words of a film critic much wiser than myself. Learn to go and see the worst films. They are sometimes sublime. We'll see you next time here at the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. Goodbye.